0: morning, church. Okay. Um, the scripture reading today comes from Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Um, thank you, Addie, for reading that to us today. Um, we are wrapping up the Gospel of Luke, right? Uh, um, actually, the Gospel of Luke is the sort of the only account that doesn't end with uh, the resurrection. Uh, there's one more sermon after this, uh, but we are in week 51, right? So we'll finish this, this gospel up in a full year. And um, last week, we went over Jesus' death. Uh, we talked about how more than anything God could give us, The suffering of Christ on the cross is the fullest expression of his love. That's what we talked about. Uh, And for us to know that love, to experience that love, uh, that love that comes through suffering. uh, You know, we can't just intellectually know it. We have to embrace it only as we embrace our own suffering, right? It's hard to understand a person's suffering if you have never suffered in your life, right? And so in that same way, when we suffer, we are experiencing to some extent God's suffering and his love for us. And so from there, we have compassion to suffer with others. And as we're doing that, we are giving each other the fullest expression of love, right? So that's sort of what we talked about last Sunday. Uh, but, but suffering and love uh, is not the only characteristic of God, um, The other one that's really important and that's what we're going to take a look at today is that God doesn't leave us in our suffering. What does he do? He redeems us from it, right? He brings about a resurrection from death in our suffering to resurrection. And so uh, this doesn't happen immediately though. You know, the redemption and the resurrection and the joy and the, the glory, that doesn't happen immediately. That doesn't even happen over months and years, you know I mean? Uh, I've been a Christian, I don't know, since I was 18, and I've been in ministry for like 12, 14 years, and I'm still experiencing what this redemption is going to look like for me in the future. You know, it takes a lifetime to experience God's redemption and resurrection. There there, the automatic lights go off again. Um, There's a lot of things we can't control, you know? (laughs) But God is going to bring about redemption in about five, four, all right, we'll wait for it. But what we're going to look at right now as we look at the resurrection, we're going to ask two things. First, we need to ask, did the resurrection happen? Right? That's, that's what we need to, we need to ask ourselves. You know, we can't just blindly believe in things. We just can't uncritically assume things. So we need to examine this question of the resurrection because our culture is also doubtful of miracles. You see? So even if you're not skeptical, even if you don't wrestle with it, your friends do. Your kids will, and you have to be able to speak to it, right? It's not enough to say, well, you know, I mean, of course it happened. I, I know it's happened, right? I feel God when I worship him because sometimes it may not even be enough for us throughout entire life when our faith is tested, when our faith is challenged. And so that's the first thing we're going to take a look at is we're going to ask ourselves, did the resurrection happen? We're going to examine some historical evidences. Uh, the first point will be a little bit heady, a little bit informative, you know, um, and so um secondly we then need to ask so what let's say the resurrection did happen so what right and 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 what i mean by that is that the resurrection cannot be just this historical fact that does not influence you right because let me take an example people have been sent into space right they've walked on the moon but does that change your life does it change you Not really. It's a fact. It's happened. But it doesn't impact you. And in the same way, I think uh, for Christians, it's very uh, possible for us to believe in the resurrection and live a life that seems no different. uh, Unaffected by it. As if if it didn't happen. As if we don't believe it. And so that's the second thing we're going to ask ourselves is, so what, right? So what if the resurrection is true? What does that mean? So let's take a look at the first thing, a challenge to our mind. As Addie read uh, in Luke 24, it says that on the first day of the week, at early dawn, um, women went to the tomb. And they took the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they didn't find the body of our Lord Jesus. And they were perplexed. And there are two men standing in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. This is a challenge to our minds, right? Imagine you're sitting there, and you're looking for a a dead body, and and you just want to anoint it to preserve it, and it's gone, and someone says, he's resurrected. He's resurrected. It's a challenge to our minds. You know, today we live in sort of a a post-enlightenment world. What does that mean? Well, the enlightenment was an explosion of scientific and philosophical inquiry in the 18th century. And so, you know, as there was this scientific sort of advancement, um, things of spirituality, things of faith started to be challenged, started to be doubted. And so what this indirectly led to was uh, this, this culture that we can understand and solve all of life's mysteries and prob- problems through science and reason, you know. And so, so the net effect is that we're trying to understand our purpose and our existence. We're trying to understand morality and justice. We're trying to understand brokenness and suffering and death and evil. We're trying to understand all of these things outside of God now outside of the Bible, outside of spirituality, right? We are reaping the shortcomings of this as uh, depression and anxiety skyrocket. But nevertheless, we we still haven't broken free from it. This is sort of the culture we live in. Um, You know, meditation is kind of making its way back, mindfulness, some spiritual practices. But it's going to take some time. It's going to take years for a, a, a cultural response to understand that some of the presuppositions and the assumptions and the worldviews we had are not necessarily fitting reality. So there's a challenge now, still, even now, to believe in the Bible's account of the resurrection. And the common thought is this, that Jesus was a good man. He existed. No one denies that. No historian denies that Jesus did not exist, right? He was a teacher. But then as the years went by, uh, his followers started to um, create these myths about him. That he was divine. And that these resurrection stories sort of developed to to bolster this community and to leverage their their social worldview. And after a couple of centuries, these legends were passed down and written in the New Testament. And that's where we get Christianity. That's sort of this pop culture understanding of how Christianity developed, right? Um, But if you examine the historical manuscripts of the Bible, um, you know, these days we have video cameras, we have Uh, fingerprints and DNA but back then there was just recorded history you know recorded history um, in scrolls recorded history um, in stone this was how pre-modern history was documented and the earliest manuscript we have of the New Testament uh, this is going to be a little bit informative all right Um, I I don't want to assume that all of us believe that the Bible is real That the bible is true how did this book come to us right but the earliest manuscript we have of the new testament is from 40 a.d which is about 10 years after jesus died it's a 10 year period after jesus died that this biography or these biographies of the gospels were written Uh, some might think well that's a lot that's a long time like how can we trust that the bible is real it's 10 years after jesus but if we were to take one comparison Right, the earliest biography of Alexander the Great was written by Plutarch. He's a well-respected historian, and he wrote it 400 years after Alexander the Great. You know? So when it comes to these ancient historian documents, even the historians consider this biography of Alexander the Great to be trustworthy. And so if we examine the Bible to its relative counterparts, then we understand that the Bible isn't far removed from the events themselves. Actually, they are pretty first-rate. And then when it comes to the amount of historical data of the Bible, um, there are more than 14,000 ancient manuscripts written of the Bible. 14,000, all right? To take another comparison, like the writings of Plato or Aristotle or Cicero, which are very highly regarded, um, we only have those copies They're in the single digits, you see? And historians consider them um, authentic and credible. And obviously, if you study archaeology, when the Bible mentions rulers and nations and political events, um, you can go to Baghdad, which is old Babylon, and you can see Nebuchadnezzar's city walls with inscriptions of his reign and the events that confirm the accounts of 2 Kings and Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah. And so I just want to point out, you know, that there are lots and lots of evidence out there that supports the record of Scripture. And so before you reject it, uh, I want to encourage you to do the work. Uh, there's lots of resources out there. There's too much at stake to write the account of Jesus off. Um, if you want to learn more about that, you can, you can email me, you can text me, I can send you some books. <laughs> All right, there's a lot out there. But there's one thing I want to mention um, before I move on to the next point, And that is this, in, in Luke 24, verse 10, it says that, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other with the, woman with them told these things to the apostles. In Mark's account of the resurrection, it says that another woman named Salome was there. And so all the gospel accounts claim that the very first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Right? Now, why is that important? Well, in those days, it was a very patriarchal culture. Women uh, in those days were not allowed to vote. They weren't allowed um, to purchase property. Uh, They weren't even allowed to give testimony in the court of law, which just sounds crazy, doesn't it? Uh, But that's how it was back then. This is how patriarchal it was back then. And so, so if women back then are not allowed to testify in court, it would be extremely disadvantageous for the gospel writers to identify the first witnesses of the resurrection as women. Unless it was true. All of the gospel writers, they record uh, the same women. They're unwilling to leave any of them out. And so the only reason why they would have done this in, in, in such a patriarchal society is because these women were there. They were the first ones to go to the tomb. They were the first ones to see Jesus risen. They saw him crucified and they saw him alive again. And I think that this is not just a a historical fact. I think that God is trying to make a point here. Because in a society where women weren't considered equal, our Lord and Savior elevates them. He chooses women as the first witnesses to his resurrection. And so Jesus is not only redeeming sin and death here. He's also redeeming women of their true dignity and honor. Starting with Jesus' resurrection. So maybe some of us are thinking, okay, Rich. You know, the Bible seems historically well-founded. All right? Jesus was alive. But you still have a difficult time believing in this supernatural resurrection. And I get it. I get it. I was there, too. So I just want to read one last thing um, for this, and and it's a quote by Stephen Hawking. Um, He didn't identify himself as a Christian or religious, but in a lecture, um, he said this. He said, until recently, the universe was thought to be essentially static and unchanging in time. Yet the evidence seems to indicate that the universe has not existed forever but had a beginning. However, many people were unhappy with this because it seemed to imply the existence of a supernatural being who created the universe. They preferred to believe that the universe and the human race had existed forever. But the odds against a universe like ours having a beginning are enormous. And I do think there are clear religious implications. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings Like us. And so you got someone here, um, a well respected uh, scientist who doesn't identify himself or did not identify himself as a Christian, saying the evidence seems to point that there was a beginning and that out of all the explanations of this beginning, um, there being a God seems to be the most plausible explanation. So, building off of that, how about this? If, If there is a God who has acted supernaturally and he's created life if there's a God who created life would it be more difficult for him to recreate life you see if you're if, if you ask any gardener if a gardener can plant a tomato plant into the soil if that tomato plant dies would it be any more difficult for a gardener to plant another tomato plant right And so if there is a God who is supernatural and he's created all of life, then it's not just possible, it it might be extremely probable. And so, you know, I just kind of go over these arguments here um, to communicate to you that Christianity shouldn't be received because it makes you feel certain emotions, Christianity shouldn't be received because uh, you grew up in the church. At the end of the day, Christianity shouldn't be received because it helps you get through the week. At the end of the day, Christianity should only be received because it's true. If it's not true, we're wasting our time, right? You see, Christianity isn't true because it helps you. Christianity helps you because it's true. So that's the first part. Um, When we think about, right, did the resurrection happen? And and examining this challenging question to our minds, um, let's take a look at the second part. So what? So what? So what? What does this mean for us? Well, you know, when Jesus was arrested and and he was put on trial and he was crucified, uh, no one stayed. Everyone left him. And then in verse 12, It says that Peter was one of the first disciples who ran to the tomb. And then later, in verse 34, it says that Peter was the first disciple that Jesus sought out after he rose from the dead. Right? It says Simon, but his name was Simon Peter. Now, we probably take this for granted. Oh, yeah, Jesus sought out Peter. Oh, yeah, Peter ran to Jesus. But there's tremendous grace here, and we're missing it. Because what we might expect Jesus to say is, right, right, tell those disciples, those, those faithless disloyalists, right, that I don't want to see them. Tell them that they're dead to me. Maybe maybe that's something we would expect Jesus today say. Maybe that's something that we might say. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't work the way we do. Right? Jesus, what does he say? He says, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. Oh, and make sure you tell Peter. Make sure you tell Peter. Why would he call out Peter? You see what's happening here? Right? Jesus forgives his disciples before they even apologize. Do you see? He's not forgiving them after they've apologized to him. Because that's not grace at all. That's paying your due. No, instead, Jesus is forgiving his disciples so that they can turn to him. You see? And Peter is constantly singled out in all of the resurrection accounts. All of them. Peter's always singled out. So you can imagine this message coming to the disciples. Jesus is telling telling the woman to tell the disciples, and this message is coming to the disciples and says, Jesus wants to see you in Galilee. What would Peter think? I could only imagine, right? He'd say, you guys go ahead. He can't mean me. I denied him three times. I said I'd be there for him. And I was the first to leave him. And so the angel makes it clear. Make sure you tell Peter. He needs to know that Jesus wants to see him too. So here's the thing. You know, typical religion understands that salvation is by your strength. Right? If I'm good, then God will accept me. If I've had a great week, then I could come to worship and I could sit in the front row. If I had a bad week, I'm going to sit in the back row. I'm saved to the degree that I'm strong and I live up to standards, some standards, my standard. But in this view, if you live in this view, then failure and flaws, what do they do? They derail your spiritual life. Salvation is for the strong, so if you fail, then you're not good enough. Why should we stick around? But that's not the message of Christianity. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of Christ is what? We are all Peter. We all have told Jesus, I'm going to love you. I'm going to do this for you. I'm never going to leave you. And we're the first to leave. And Jesus wants to see us too. So here is the point sometimes it can happen in a church that failures and guilt become barriers to God, right? You're late, right? Go find another church. (laughs) No, no, right? But instead, when we look at the gospel accounts, failure and guilt are not barriers to God. They are actually conduits of God's Love. There are conduits of God's grace, of his forgiveness, and from there, spiritual life. You see, we think that we can get spiritual life if we don't fail and we, you know, are on top of everything and, you know, we don't, you know, miss a Sunday or we're serving. All th- but if you look at the scriptures, what it says is that actually spiritual life comes from God first, from his grace, from his forgiveness, and out of that, we serve him out of gratitude. And when we fail, we go back to God's grace. We go back to his forgiveness. We don't have to leave. We don't have to make it up. We go back to him for forgiveness. The kingdom of Jesus is not received when we pretend we're strong. It's only received when you admit you're weak. When you admit, you need a savior. When you admit, you need grace. but Here's the thing. I hate admitting when I failed. <laughs> I try everything to avoid it. We defend ourselves. right? We'll blame other people. Our pride gets in the way. We get defensive. And, and we will do everything we can um, other than coming to God and saying, God, forgive me. I need you. I mean, I don't know, just think about this. When was the last time you said to God, God, I'm a failure? When was the last time you said that? Our, Our pride shudders even to think or utter those words, right? We avoid this. Why do we avoid this? Why do we avoid this? Because when we say to ourselves or to God or even to other people, I'm a failure, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, it feels like a death. And it is a death. a church, it's the right kind of death. It's the death to the lie of self-sufficiency. It's a death to pride and arrogance. It's a death to hopelessness and despair. Because when you cling to Jesus' as grace for you, then what happens? Your heart is, is wide open. And what felt like a death for you is now becoming a resurrection. You see? Let me just give a personal illustration as we wrap this up. You know, growing up, you know, um, maybe you guys can understand, you know, we want to be successful. You know, no one grows up and says, I want to be a failure in life. That's my goal. No, right? We want to be successful, right? We want to do well in school. You know, we want to do well in sports. We want to do well with our peers. We want to do well in university. We want to do well amongst our friends. And so for me, right, this, this became uh, so um, anxious, and uh, I was so hard on myself, the criticism of myself, it was so debilitating, um, that there, there came a point where um, I was just utterly depressed. And I, I looked around me, and I, I said, you know, I, I, I feel like I have done somewhat decently, and um, I should be happy, but I'm miserable, right? Just inside, I'm miserable. Things weren't matching up. I looked fine on the outside, but on, on, the, on the inside, I was dead. So in my depression, you know, as friends uh, were reaching out to me and inviting me to church, I decided to give church a very serious try. You know, I, I was kind of growing up in and out of the church, but I never really took it seriously. And so I went to church. Um, you know, I read the Bible a lot. I prayed. And, you know, I gave my life to him as a, as a senior in high school. Um, but what happened was, I still wanted to be successful in my faith now, (laughs) right? I wanted to be the best Christian. I wanted to be better than everyone else. And so I was involved with church, and I was committed, and, you know, I was reading the Bible a lot, but, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't humble, you know? Um, I would get argumentative when it came to the Bible, or with other people, um, I was critical. I looked down on others, and so my pride was still heavily involved, and I just had changed the, uh, the area activity of where my pride would, would work. So now I'm trying to be successful at spirituality, but, you know, I'm just sort of a self-righteous snob, you know? So I'm, I'm right where I, I was again, dead on the inside. So I left the church, and for several years, I, I lived a reckless life, and I remember very vividly, very vividly um, in college, sort of just weeping bitterly in my room, you know. Um, On one hand, I did not want to continue down this path without God. I knew that that led to darkness and despair. On the other hand, I felt like I had already failed at spirituality, and I just did not want to go to church. I did not want to go through the motions I felt unworthy, undeserving of God's grace, felt hypocritical going to church and singing songs. And so I'm kind of stuck in the middle here, right? And uh, I don't think this is just me uh, from talking to a lot of you. I I think that we're all the same here. There's this tension where we go back and forth between uh, the emptiness of living for ourselves. Maybe it's a season where, man, you're just focused on your career. And then you realize how empty that is. And then, you, you know, you're giving church a try. And then you realize how exhausting that is in in trying to love God and serve him and love other people. So so we're sort of teeter-tottering between living for ourselves and, and then living for God. But the resurrection gives us a third way. What God is saying is, he's saying, look, I know you're searching for something more meaningful and more Purposeful than living for yourself, you know. Um, I just watched Top Gun Two, okay, with some of uh, some of y'all, and and you know, like uh, some of the women that were watching it was like, "Ah, oh, that movie's terrible, right?" All oh, the guys just like it because there's like airplanes and they're blowing things up, and we we're like so offended, you know, like no, no, we're not that shallow, okay? And we had to actually take a minute to talk. why did we like this movie so much? Because the men in that movie and the women in that movie, the people in that movie, they had a greater purpose right? They got together, right? They put their ego aside for a greater purpose um, to protect their country. And something about that resonated with us because I think that we, the, the, the guys watching that movie, we, we understood the emptiness for living for yourself and wanting to be, some, be a part of something bigger, So God knows, look, I know you're looking, you need something bigger than just for yourself. Because living for yourself, it's not very meaningful. But then God also says, I know you're also searching for something more powerful. Because as ambitious and as driven you as you are, your willpower is not enough to overcome brokenness. Jesus is saying is, you need something greater. You need someone greater. Right? We're all looking. We all want to be maverick. <laughs> but Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm maverick. <laughs> Y'all are my wingmen, okay? So, Friends, do you see? Do you see how Jesus how it's not about you? You know? You're not the champion of your life. Jesus is. And do you see how your failures and each other's failures are not barriers to God, but a conduit of God's grace and his love for you and from their spiritual life. And church, Jesus knows that, that, that we can't even do this perfectly. And that's why he died for us. Right? Rather than judgment, Jesus lifts the burden of guilt by dying on the cross for all your failures for all your sin and we need to hear this every single week right jesus has died for all your sin for all your shame all your brokenness all your weakness before the throne of god the only one who matters he looks at you and he says you are righteous not because of anything you've done not because of everything you're going to do but purely because you believe in my son and in this suffering on the cross, in the fullest expression of my love, you are mine. And nothing's gonna change that. And so, when you get this, when you understand that there is someone more powerful than you, there is someone more gracious and loving than you, and when that fills your heart, it's going to fill you with resurrection, right? And not just once but daily resurrection, right? That's why in um, the book of Lamentations, God says, my mercy is new for you, what? Every morning. That's literal. It's a literal promise. So I like to say from, you know, um, that day on I was good to go, you know, once I truly understood the gospel. I like to say that that was the last time I struggled in my faith or wasn't a spiritual rut, or made mistakes, or struggled with anxiety or depression. I like to say that that was the last time I needed to relearn about God's grace and depend upon Him for His resurrecting life. But it wasn't. Right. It was just the beginning, and that's what resur- resurrection means, right? Friends, it means that every single day uh, you have resurrection from sin to forgiveness, guilt to grace. You know, the book of Hebrews, the author even says that Jesus' blood cleanses our conscience because he knows. I mean, imagine this, right? Like uh, Peter was probably plagued with his conscience of betraying Jesus. Paul was probably plagued in his conscience for murdering Christians. And so the author of Hebrews says His blood is good enough to even cleanse your conscience. Death to life. Let me just end with this. In the book of Revelation, Jesus calls us his bride. His bride. Not because we're perfect, um, but because Jesus is madly in love with us. In the Old Testament, uh, God compares this bride to Gomer, right? Uh, Gomer who was unfaithful to Hosea multiple times. But nevertheless, God still loves you. He still loves the church. And he's working all things under heaven and earth to bring us to heaven Right In the book of Revelation, what, what is this author just consumed with? He's just consumed with, just make it to heaven. It's hard enough. And what this means is that one day we're not going to confess our sin anymore. Can't wait for that day. One day we're not going to struggle with our faith anymore. We're not going to struggle with guilt or depression conflict, suffering. And death will be no more. See, the resurrection means, friends, that whatever brokenness you are experiencing in your life, that's not the end of your story. It may take months or years, it'll take a lifetime, but Jesus is in the process of redeeming and resurrecting your brokenness. And the Holy Spirit is is on a mission to make Jesus' resurrection your resurrection. But it only comes when you admit that you need it, when you admit that you're insufficient for these things and that you need supernatural grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you. And we've probably, many of us have probably uh, heard of or or read this resurrection account. And that's where we need your spirit to make this fresh again. That's where we need your glorious power to uh, take away the scales from our eyes And to apply this text to our particular circumstance. For you know everything about us. There is nothing that happens in our lives that you have not planned in your providential wisdom and love. So I just pray for every single person here. That your spirit would go out to them. That your spirit would soften them that your spirit would bring about um, forgiveness and sin, would bring about hope and despair, would bring about peace and conflict, would bring about joy and suffering. Father, we all need resurrection, but it only comes when we admit we're weak. So humble us, but it's a safe humbling. Because it brings us to the cross. The cross of your son. Which is your fullest expression of your love. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. You know, at this time, um, every Sunday after the sermon, uh, we partake of communion. And it's a reminder um, that right now we, we, we taste it. Right? But in heaven... It's going to be a feast. You know, in the book of Exodus, when they partook of the Passover, uh, God said to Moses, do this quickly. Right? This is not your home. And I know sometimes we, we, we think that this is eternity, but it's a reminder that we're just getting a taste and that our true home is in heaven. And we're going to be there together. We're going to be reunited with everyone and our joy is going to be complete. So friends, um, you should have gone to COVID-safe communion.